the mission of the Father. When we say mission, what comes to our mind? What comes to our mind is like, you know, in my mind at least, is mission impossible, right? The music, dun, 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 dun. And you think about, you know, oh, this big, dramatic thing happening. This is your mission if you choose to accept it. Why do all movie people talk like this? I don't know. But this is what we think, right? Mission. And it's actually, that's good, because really when we're talking about mission, we are talking about something dramatic. We're talking about the mission of the Father. We're talking about the plan for the universe, what God wanted to do, what the Creator God wanted to do. And that plan, in fact, everything begins with who God is. First verse in the Bible, first verse in Scripture is, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is what the Scripture presents as the beginning. That before there was anything else, there was God. So now if, we, if you are here today and you're, you're not sure if you believe there is a God, you have to believe then in the beginning was dirt. <laughs> Stuff. Matter. Because that's really the only other option. If you don't believe there's a creator God, the only other option is in the beginning there was stuff. And you have to believe that stuff somehow became the complex universe that we see today. Now, we start with a premise that in the beginning was God. That God is as he's always been and always will be. And who God is dictates what God is doing. And the guys who followed Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, the ones that were closest to him, picked up on this theme. Remember in John's Gospel, John writes, John was the beloved disciple, someone whom was very, very close to Jesus, one of the closest three disciples to Jesus relationally. And John writes this in his Gospel using a similar language to Genesis. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now, if you guys have been around Christianity or around church services before, you know who this is talking about, because later on in the same chapter, chapter 1 of John, in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking of Jesus himself. And so John's gospel makes it clear, okay, there's this, this God who has always been. And the fact that he says this God showed himself in the person of Jesus tells us that this God is one what and three who's. Sounds like Dr. Seuss, doesn't it? One what and three who's. In other words, the Bible teaches there is one God manifest in three persons, each equal. And this is really important. Because when we talk about a creator God, we're not just talking about there is some higher power, even just some personal God or a God who has personality who's made everything. Other religions believe that as well. We as Christians, we as those who are people of the book, believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit because we start with Jesus and as we look out at what Jesus says about God, we come to this conclusion. The same conclusion that the disciples came to. That Jesus, the one who walked earth, was God who had taken on flesh. God the Son taken on flesh. It was Jesus who taught us that the Spirit he would send would be another of the same kind as him. The Holy Spirit. The Bible talks of him having personage. He's a person, a he. And so this God, this three-in-one God, is who was in the beginning who created everything and everything for a purpose. Now this is really important because 
even who God is tells us something about why God made everything and what God wants to do with everything he made. Because our God is three in one, that means we believe this, that our God is not just personal, but our God is relationship. He's relationship. You know, John, again, the same John who wrote the gospel, wrote in his epistle that God is love. We'll talk about that in a minute. And this reality that, that this three-person God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, has always enjoyed a perfect, loving community. No need for anything else. God didn't create the universe because he was bored. God didn't create the universe because he was lonely. He had all that he needed himself. Perfect love. Perfect joy. So he creates the universe. He creates mankind for what reason? That we might experience him. We might experience the same perfect joy, perfect relationship that he has. In fact, What Jesus says when Jesus is praying for us in John chapter 17, he says this, he prays this, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. He's talking about us who will believe. He says, then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Now, glory, remember, is one of those big kind of words that we pretty much only use in two contexts. You know, we talk about pursuing glory as an athlete or, a, you know, as someone who wants to achieve something. Or we talk about glory in the Scriptures, like glory be to God. What do we mean by that? What the Scripture means by glory is it means declaring or revealing a unique value about something or someone. So when we talk about the glory of something, we mean how is that uniquely valuable? What, what is specific about the glory or about that thing? So like the book of Proverbs says, the glory of a young man is his strength. Because generally speaking, men are strongest when they're young. They also say the glory of an old man is his gray hair, or in my case, no hair. Because the idea of gray hair is someone who's wise. And generally speaking, as people get older, they get wiser. I know young people don't believe that, but I promise it's true. And so when we talk about the glory of God, when Jesus is praying about the glory of God, he's saying, Father, I want those who believe in me to see what is so uniquely valuable about you. Remember, he's praying this before he goes to a cross and dies, before he's then resurrected, before he ascends to heaven and sends his spirit. So everything begins with this. It begins with understanding who God is, that we Talk about, when we talk about God, we don't just mean God in a generic sense. We mean the God of the Bible, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But also, listen, God's always had a plan, or God's plan has always been that we would grow as a family. He creates us to grow. Look at this. Listen to this. Again, the book of Genesis should be on the screen. Genesis chapter 1, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Now God gives this command to these, these first humans that he makes. He makes them like himself in that they are moral beings. They are beings that can make choices. And they are beings that want relationship. In fact, you remember the story, right? God makes Adam first and then lets Adam realize it's not good to be alone and then creates from Adam Eve. That's the story. 
This, this God making us in His image means we're, we are made for relationship. That's why that sort of hermit lifestyle doesn't really work. We need relationship. We need one another. Why? Because this is we're made in the image of God. And so he, he says he makes us in the image of God and he gives us command. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. He expects reproduction. He makes it fun for a reason. Because he wants the whole earth to be filled with these image bearers of him so people can know who he is. That's what he wants to do. This has always been his plan. Also, listen, later on we see in Genesis chapter 12 that God sends up, sets up the planet further with this man, Abraham. He says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. So God picks one man, Abram, and his wife, Sarai, who are unable to have children. He says, I'm going to do something supernatural through you so that your descendants, through your descendants, there'll be a blessing that blesses everyone on the earth. Now, what happens between these two things? You guys remember? What happens between Genesis 1 and Genesis 12? Genesis 3. (laughs) And in Genesis 3, what happens? Adam and Eve rebel against God. They They go for their own plan instead of God's plan. And everything goes pear-shaped. And because it goes pear-shaped, those, they, they are changed. The world is changed in a negative sense. And so what happens is this brokenness enters into the world, what the Bible calls sin. But as soon as that happens, God sets up, he, he, he begins to expose what his plan is. He begins to expose this plan that I'm going to redeem people back. I'm going to bring people back into my family. And that plan begins to take shape with this guy, Abram. Abram, I'm going to do something supernatural through you. This is important because we need to recognize it's always been God's plan to grow a family. He he wanted that from the beginning, even though he knew man would rebel against that. And even when man rebelled against that and kind of ruined every family that would ever be on on the planet, God already had a plan. God wasn't going, oh no, i got to do something else. God already knew what would happen. He already had a plan. And so God specifically picks this guy, Abram, and his wife, Sarai, because they can't have children. He says, I'm going to pick you because you are barren, because I want to use that barrenness to reveal myself to all those who will see that I'm the God who brings life. And he does. You probably know the story, right? Abraham and Sarah, many, many, many years later, when they're really, really, really old and it's really obvious that there's no natural way they're going to fall pregnant, what happens? They fall pregnant. And they have a child named Isaac. Now, this is important because we see again in the ministry of Jesus, this idea of family keeps coming up. When some people come to Jesus and say, oh, your mother and brothers want to talk to you, Jesus says, well, actually, who's my mother and brother? Who are, my, who are my brothers? Who's my family? Here's what he says in Matthew 12, 50. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, who's, who's walking in God's plan? Now, here's the deal. God's plan has always been to grow a family. And listen, God wants to use his family, those who belong to him, to expand his family. That's what he wants to do. And this is where we pick it up in Matthew chapter 28. When Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise that was made to Abram. 
God had said to Abraham, from your seed, singular, I'm going to bless the whole earth. That seed was Jesus. Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he does all the things we would expect God to do if God became man. He shows authority over creation, calms the seas with a, with a word, right? Peace be still, the waves calm down. Has, shows authority over sickness. Everyone who's sick comes to him. Jesus heals everyone who comes to him. Shows authority over death. He resurrects several different people, and including himself, after predicting that. He, it shows that he has power over evil spirits, over demonic oppression. He did Cast out demons constantly. And he shows that he has authority, listen, authority to forgive sins. Something that the Jews, Jesus was a Jew, would have thought, well, how does that work? How does, how does anybody but God forgive sins? Well, he is God. He proved he was God by showing he had authority to forgive sins. And so he shows the character of God. He predicts, listen, his own death and resurrection, something that his followers don't really get why it is until it happens. But then after it happens, after Jesus is crucified, after Jesus is resurrected, he appears to the disciples over 40 days. Many, many times. And the last recorded thing we have him saying is what we have here in Matthew 28, where he begins to say, okay, he, he unfolds again, he makes it clear, this is the plan of God. This is the mission of the Father. And here's what he says. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Famous words, what we call the Great Commission. This is really Jesus laying out the fact that, G that God wants to continue to use his family to expand his family. You see, the, the thing about Christianity is it is very, very exclusive in this sense. It's exclusive in the sense that Jesus makes it clear no one can come to God can have a relationship with God except through him. He makes it clear. But it's also incredibly inclusive because Jesus says, whosoever will come, I will in no ways cast out. God tells us that there's going to be someone from every tongue, tribe, and nation who ends up in the family of God. It's good news. It's both exclusive and inclusive. So what Jesus is talking about here is, here's how we bring people into God's family. And it's, it's boiled down to this word that we call discipleship. A disciple is a learner or a follower, someone who's being mentored, you might say. Discipleship is, a, is this process of mentoring one another. And so Jesus is kind of laying out this discipleship. And, and we want, I want to make sure you guys understand, everything that we do as, as a church, a servant's church, boils down to these things. It boils down to us wanting to be disciples who make disciples. We want to be followers of Jesus that help others be followers of Jesus. In fact, really, in our minds, discipleship is not so much a program, like, have you gone to discipleship group? But it's a culture. Are we discipling one another? God wants to develop, we believe, in us a family who disciples one another, helps one another follow Jesus. 
And there's four aspects to that. So we're going to look at that. The first thing is this. We believe discipleship is relational because God is love. Notice what it says in verse 16. It says, These eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. It says, the eleven disciples. There's these eleven guys. Who are these eleven guys? These are eleven out of the twelve guys that Jesus picked to follow him. Jesus hand-chose these guys to, to build a leadership uh, for his church that would lead the family of God forward. He picks 12 of them. One of them is, you know, Judas, who betrays him. There's 11 left. These are, in other words, 11 guys that Jesus has chosen and has had intimate relationship with for the last three and a half years. He was close to these guys, incredibly close to these guys. And he knew exactly, knew exactly what they wanted. Before he had died, he had said, listen, here's the deal I'm going to, after I resurrect, I'm going to appear to you in Galilee. So be prepared. Of course, they weren't prepared, but after he dies and after he's resurrected, they remember this, and so they follow that, and they go and they see him in Galilee. That's not the only time. There's lots of times that they saw him, but it's important to recognize the people that are being given this command. These 11 disciples, these are people that had relationship with Jesus. They knew him. These weren't people that just understood theological truths. This is, these aren't just people who had some sort of an epiphany. These are people who ate with Jesus, walked with Jesus, saw Jesus do the things that he did. John, who writes the words that we've quoted earlier, it says of John that he actually at one point at the, at the Last Supper lays his head upon the very chest of Jesus. They're that close. Now, I love a lot of you all, but I don't want you laying your head on my chest. We're not that close, sorry. My wife can do it. My kids, that's about as far as it goes. But Jesus did that. There was this, this closeness and intimacy. These were men that he knew well. These are people that he called friends. This is important because if Jesus says, okay, I want to, to, to move forward, I want to be the one who brings the, to completion the plan of God to build a family of God, and he says, here's how it works. It's got to be relational. We should pay attention to that. And it's relational, listen, because of who God is. God is love. Listen to this. John writes this. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, John records this for us. Jesus says these words in John chapter 8, verse 32. Jesus says, oh, sorry, wrong verse. Where am I? <laughs> yeah, wrong verse. So John writes this in 1 John chapter 4. Listen to this. John writes, but if anyone does not love, but anyone who does not love does not know God for God is love. He didn't say love is God. That would be different. He said God is love. God defines what love is. God showed how much He loved us by sending His Son, His one and only Son, into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Do you see what John's saying? John's saying, listen, we should love each other. Why? Because God is love. Why does discipleship require a relationship? Why do we need to be relational with each other? Because God is relational God. And if we're going to say, here's what his family's like, we've got to demonstrate that, the relationship. This is why we're always pushing you guys to get in small groups, to know people and to be known by people. It's not, we're trying, not trying to make your schedule busier. We're trying to say, listen, make God's people a priority because as we love each other, we show that God is love. This is what it requires. Now, 
But it's more than that. Look at verse 18. Jesus, when he speaks to them, here's what he says. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. Now, we already said, right, Jesus demonstrates the authority of God in his earthly ministry. He doesn't lose that after he dies and resurrects. He continues with that authority. In fact, he delegated that authority to us through the sending of God's Holy Spirit. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1, if you want to read about that more, in Acts chapter 1 and 2, how God sends his authority through us by the work of his Holy Spirit, the work that he wants to do, he does through his people. Now, this is what we have to understand here. We're not talking about just ideas that we're following. We're talking about a person we have a relationship with, and this person not only is love, but also this person is omnipotent. You guys know what that word means? It means all-powerful. This is why we believe, listen, discipleship is transformational. That God actually changes people. He actually changes people. I can say this from experience. I know that God has changed me and is changing me. But it's also important that we recognize this is what the Scripture actually teaches, that when God brings somebody into his family, he begins to do a work, a transformational work, to make them have the family characteristics, that they're able to love each other, that they're able to say no to things God wants them to say no to and yes to things God wants them to say yes to. It's not just them making choices to adhere to certain moral obligations. It's bigger than that. It's God doing something supernatural to change us from the inside out. I've got to tell you, if my job was to just try to help people conform to some sort of moral code, even the moral code of Jesus, which is glorious, but this moral code to love your enemies as yourself, I've never met a single human being who's able to do it perfectly except Jesus. But what I'm seeing is, is people being changed by this Jesus to desire to do that and to begin to show what that looks like. People actually change that way. God actually changes people that way. Now, again, look what the Scripture says. Paul writes this. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, We never give up. Though our bodies are dying, all those over 40 say amen, Amen. our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, in the light of eternity that is. Yet they produce for us a glory, a unique value that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. God is changing us. We're being renewed. In fact, another version says we're renewed day by day. We're being renewed every day. God's changing us from the inside out. We're being transformed. This is what God wants to do. So we're talking about discipleship is relational because God's love, but it's also transformational because God is omnipotent. This is why we, this is why, listen, we pray. We pray, and we try to pray a lot, and we try to always tell you, come pray with us. Pray some more. Pray for each other. Why? Because not that prayer is powerful, but the God that we pray to is powerful. The God that we ask to move wants to move. He wants to work. And he calls us to pray believing that. We believe God does supernatural things. We believe God changes people. 
It's funny too because I think sometimes what happens to us is we think, okay, I don't have, you ever, heard, you ever felt like I don't really have a testimony, I don't have a story, a Jesus story because I wasn't a drug addict or a murderer and before I became a Christian. I just kind of grew up around Christians and, and then kind of realized, well, this is true and then I, I prayed to receive Jesus or I got baptized or both or I was christened or whatever the case might be and so my story's kind of boring. Hey, is Jesus changing you? <laughs> because that's what we're pursuing. Forget about the forms around that. Is Jesus changing you? Because that's what he wants to do by his Holy Spirit. That's what we want to pursue, a change that only God can bring. Also, though, what does Jesus say in verse 19? He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them, he says. Teaching them. So he tells them to go to all nations. That is, go to anyone who will listen to you. No matter what their race is, what their creed is, no matter what their background is, no matter how rich or poor they are, go to anyone who will listen and teach them what I've taught you. And if they believe, baptize them. To be baptized is to identify with Jesus. That's what the, how the Bible deals with baptism, that we're baptized with him in his death and with him in his resurrection. So when a person is dunked in the water and brought back up, it's an outward symbol of an inward reality that's already taking place, that we're unified with Jesus through faith. So his death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. And so when he says go and baptize, he says help these people to identify as Jesus followers, to identify as those who know who he is and want to trust him. And he says this is done in a big way by teaching. They need to know. Why? Well, discipleship is informational because God is truth. We're not talking about just some sort of, you know, hey, as long as you have an experience, it doesn't matter what that experience is, or as long as you believe in a God, it doesn't matter who that God is. No, that's not what Jesus taught. He was really clear that there's truth and there's falsehood. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 8 and chapter 14. Listen. Jesus says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. One of the most known and quoted verses. I want you to think about, though, Put your philosophy hat on for a second and think about how profound those words are. When Jesus says, you shall know the truth, what is he saying about the truth? It's definable. It's recognizable. We can say what it is. That's what he's saying about the truth. When he says, and it'll make you free, he's saying, once you define it and know what it is, then it can be liberating. This is why, listen, we want to explain to people who we mean by God, who we mean by Jesus. This is why we want to explain to people how they can be right with this God, why they need to be right with this God, why they're not just naturally okay with this God. We explain the truth because there is such thing as a truth because God himself is truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's interesting because in the original language, the Greek language that this was originally written in, uh, sometimes they use the definite article, sometimes they don't. But when they use the, defi- the definite article, as they do three times in this verse, it's to underscore. It's the, way we, the difference between when we say the and the. Jesus is saying of himself, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. This is why discipleship requires people to understand what they're getting themselves into. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody has to know everything before they become a Jesus follower. And if you're here today and you're going, I still have so many questions. I think I want to believe in this Jesus, but I have so many questions. Well, listen, if you're going to wait till all your questions are answered, <laughs> you're never going to follow him. You're never going to trust him. You know what that's like? It's like saying, I love this person. I want to marry them. But, you know, I've got to see what their life turns out like before I do that. Hello. That doesn't work, does it? You make a commitment and you take what you can get. <laughs> you hope it works out okay. Good news with Jesus is it always works out okay. It works out perfectly. Listen, this is why the, the, the apostles, these 11 that were mentioned earlier, the 11 disciples, this is why many of them wrote things that, that we kept as authoritative. <laughs> In fact, John writes this. He says, we, speaking of him and the other apostles, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Now, sometimes people ask us, uh, I say us as in servants church, some people will ask us in leadership, why do you guys make such a big deal about the Bible? Why do you spend so much time talking about the Bible? Well, because the Bible basically is these are the apostles' doctrine. The New Testament specifically is these apostles, these 11 guys, taking what the Old Testament said, what God had already said in the Old Testament, and interpreting it through the person and work of Jesus. And if they said, these guys who walked with Jesus, they knew Jesus best, eyewitnesses of his miracles, eyewitnesses of his resurrection, if they said, listen, we're speaking to you in authority, and Jesus said they would speak in authority, guess what? They're the authority, not us. That's why we believe in this doctrine that uh, the Reformation, Reformers during the Reformation time called sola scriptura, that is, through Scripture alone. We believe in the authority of, of Scripture. Because it's not what I think it says, it's what it actually says that has authority. Do you understand? And so we keep going back to God's Word because we want to see people become disciples. We want people to be in God's family, to know who it is that they're calling Father. Lastly, discipleship is not just relational and transformational and informational. It's also intentional. It requires obedience. Why? Because God is active. Look what it says in the last part of verse, of, or the middle part of, of verse 20. <clears throat> Jesus says, teaching them to what? To observe, that is to obey all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. God says, Jesus says, listen, if, if God's family is going to expand through my family, that means you have to be a family that obeys, right? I mean, come on, this is Parenting 101, right? When you're, especially when your kids are really small. What do you have to teach them? You need to do what mom and dad say. Why? Because you know better than the kids. You don't ask your three-year-old, what would you like to do today? Well, what do you want your life to be about? They're three. <laughs> now, you might say, do you want this cereal, this cereal? That can be a good thing. But you don't have to say, you don't say, what would you like? Anything you like, I'll do it for you. They're three. They're going to say, I want a pony. <laughs> Dressed like a clown. They're going to want all kinds of things that you, not only, well, maybe you could produce it, but you don't want to produce it. It wouldn't be for their good. No, parents tell the kids, especially when they're small, here's what you need to do, right? Well, why would it be any different in the family of God? We have a heavenly father that says, listen, listen, listen. You, you need me to tell you what needs to happen. 
This is also why we want to point people to the Father. This is why I don't tell you guys, you've got to do what I say. Hey, I'm the Father here. Call me Father John. No, please don't ever call me Father John. Because <laughs> I'm not your Father. There's one Father, your Father in heaven. We're brothers and sisters. He's the one that has authority. He's the one that calls the shots. Jesus is the one we want to obey. Now, again, we want to do this. We want to teach people this. Why? Because God is active. He's active. Listen to what the scripture says, okay? It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you've done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Do you see how that works? Especially if you're new to this Christian stuff. Do you, this is really important. Do you see what he says? God saves you. You might say God brings you into his family not because you deserved it or because you can earn it, because you cannot. None of us deserves a place in God's family. None of us can earn a place in God's family. But God does that freely by his grace. That's what grace is. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. That's what grace is. But when he brings us into the family, he says, look, okay, I brought you into the family for good works. Not by good works. You're in the family by the grace of God, by the work of God alone. But he brings us into the family for good works. So we can do good things. What good things? Being disciples who can make disciples. That's why he does it. Listen, if you're a Jesus follower today, you've got to get it through your head. God didn't save you so you can go, cool, I get to go to heaven. I'll see you whenever I die, hopefully later than sooner, God. Now my life's mine. That's not what he does. He saves you out of this world into his family so that you can be a part of the family business, which is what? Bringing as many people into the family as possible. That's why he does it. Every single one of you. My job and Joe's job and Adam's job as pastors is to equip you to that end, to teach you to do that, what it looks like, which makes it a tough job because we're not always great examples if we're honest. But by the grace of God, we can point past ourselves and say, look, we can trust Jesus. Let's move forward in this. Let's be disciples who can make disciples. You see, listen, we have to understand this. God saves us by his grace. God, God doesn't kick us out of his family. He doesn't adopt us just to kind of kick us out later on. It's not what he does. When God saves us, he saves us for good, for eternity. He keeps us. When we're adopted into his family, we, we belong to him. But this is the deal. He does so, and he will make sure that we end up having the family characteristics. And just like a good parent would do, if the child refuses to obey, there's consequences for their actions. They have to sit on the naughty step. <laughs> the point is, we call people to learn to be obedient disciples because that's what God is doing. We're just simply calling people to say, you know what, you know God's calling you to do this. If you're, if you believe in Jesus, you're following Jesus, he's calling you to trust him, to do the things that he's called you to do. Don't be afraid. You can trust him. Come on, let's do this together. Listen, the scripture says this. Philippians chapter 2 says, work hard to show, notice the results of your salvation. All right, God save me. What does that look like? Well, it looks like me what? Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Why? Listen, 
For God is working in you, giving you the desire, the desire and the power to do what he pleases. Now, this is important because here's what happens for us as Christians. We go, okay, well, I do have a desire to please God, but if I'm honest, and I won't admit this to anybody else at church, but if I'm honest, I want to do what pleases me as well. This is why we have to be honest with each other. This is what ends up making us being a culture of discipleship. When we can be honest about the fact that sometimes I want to do what I want to do, but sometimes I want to do what God wants to do. See, the issue is recognizing if you have any desire at all to do what God wants you to do, where does that desire come from? It comes from God. And you know what happens? That desire grows as we obey it. As God says, draw near to me, trust me, and we obey him. You know what happens? We learn to trust him more. If God says, step out, do this thing, you know what happens? As we step out and do this thing, we learn to trust him more. When we obey, we grow. See, our obedience doesn't add anything to God. Remember, he's God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He's complete in himself. He gains nothing from our obedience, but we gain everything he's promised through that obedience. We work out what he's worked in. 